Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Let me tell you right now what the biggest problem with the NHL's restarted season is. It is without question unnecessary hats. <laughs> <laughs> Connor McDavid. I love Hat Lady. I hat love lady. her. Hat Lady comes down to the ice after Connor McDavid has a hat trick against the Blackhawks. And Hat Lady throws hats on the ice. She works for the NHL. They were. Sp- I found out uh, from the league that they were supposed to do this for any hat trick, but they weren't like ready to do it when Svechnikov had his hat trick for the Hurricanes earlier the same day. Mm. So there's a picture the Hurricanes put out of all these hats in his locker. I think those are the NHL hats they had ready to throw on the ice, which is hilarious because one of them's a Whalers hat. Yeah, wait, um, they have a Whalers hat on call no matter what. Apparently, <laughs> you never know when you're going to need it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I don't know if like you know, you know, uh, Blake Wheeler gets a hat trick. Do they have a, a a Thrasher's hat at the ready to throw on the ice too? <laughs> but so McDavid gets the hat trick. Hat Lady runs down, throws the hats on the ice. Her form, by the way, very strong. She obviously took some notes from uh, Predators fans and Red Wings fans throwing animals on the ice, uh, dead animals on the ice, because her form was really good. And then after the game, someone's like, hey, Connor, what'd you think of that crazy gimmick where the NHL threw hats on the ice, even though there's no fans in the building? And his response is legit. I felt it was unnecessary. I just wanted to get back out there and keep going, which is <laughs> like the epitome of Connor McDavid, but also kind of reminded me, to be honest with, with you, of back in 2009 when Ovechkin and, and Sid, Sidney Crosby had hat tricks in the same game during the playoffs and Sid infamously complained about how long it took to clean up the hats. He's like, I just want to get back out and play. I thought the hats were a bit much. I'm like, I guess if you're like one of the best, if you're like the greatest player of your generation, it's just inherent that you're going to have hate for the hat trick hats, apparently, from what we've seen. So I feel like a lot of people thought it was tacky, but I liked it. And I think it was, to your point, the tweet you had where you were like, Steve Mayer told me they were going to do some cheeky things. And it was that big shot of the Jumbotron day one or day two where they're like, today's announced attendance, zero. Yeah. And it's kind of just like the NHL winking at itself. Like, hey, we get it. This isn't normal. Like, this is kind of silly. But we're trying to give you as much resemblance of NHL hockey or postseason hockey that you remember. And we're doing the best we can. Yeah, it's they've done a good job towing the line between hey, look, we're all in on the joke. This is cheeky fun. And then the other side of the line, which is how devastatingly depressing is it to be playing the Stanley Cup playoffs in two empty buildings? But I think they've done a good job with that. Let's talk about it. Coming up on this edition of ESPN and Ice, we've got two awesome guests. Ben Bishop, Dallas Stars goalie, is going to tell us about life inside the bubble and goaltending in that vacuum. Plus, Isaac Bogosh, NHLPA medical advisor, talking about how the league somehow sealed up the bubbles and got it right to the point where they've had uh, no positive COVID-19 tests through the last couple rounds of testing. Uh, Plus, what we like and don't like about the restarted season so far, and of course, coverage of Matt Dumba's speech and Knights and Stars players taking a knee during the anthem and uh, all of the uh, racial uh, justice and equality things that the NHL has been doing in this restart. Coming up on this edition of ESPN on Ice, let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds. A podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. 
I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And uh, we have a lot to get to because since the last show, the season has been restarted. We saw some exhibition action, I believe, and, and covered that in the last episode. But now we've actually seen the round robin and the qualification round getting going. Let's, let's start on the ice. Let's start competition-wise. What's been your biggest surprise so far, either in the way that games have been trending or some of the performances from the teams? Hmm. It was fascinating to me to learn, and I know that RA from Spit and Chicklets has been all over this, but almost all games so far have hit the under. And that's interesting to me because we expected this to be a freewheeling tournament. All these goalies might be rusty, fluky things happening. I thought there would be a lot of goals. Um, to that point... Two teams, the Dallas Stars, when they jumped up to three goals the other day, I'm like, holy cow, the Dallas Stars can score more than two goals. This is very dangerous. Um, the New York Islanders, as they're recording this, they're going up against the Panthers. I'm like, shoot, what's going to happen if they can score more than two goals too? Uh, and then the other thing that's surprised me in a good way is that there's already drama. And, of course, it involves the Calgary Flames. It's no Battle of Alberta, but it's close because it's Paul Maurice and his phantom camera angle that saw the Matthew Kachuk play versus the world and it's awesome yeah claiming Kachuk intentionally try, intentionally hurt Mark, Mark Shifley um with a hit that uh he claimed there's a camera angle that it, he's got like his hands on the hockey's a Bruder film where he's got the only camera angle of Matthew Kachuk injuring Mark Shifley uh the league certainly doesn't have it because they probably would have suspended the guy because there's no love lost between uh the NHL and Matthew Kachuk uh, but obviously, just trying to push the buttons, get his team going. It worked. They they tied the series after it went. It, he he pulled that out of his hat. Um, but kind of weird. I agree with you on the low scores. Not what I expected. Uh, with with the varying degrees of of fitness and uh, ice conditions and things like that, you thought it would be a little bit more high scoring. Um, I I was surprised by the varying degree in quality between the qualification round mm. and the round robin like i knew the round robin was going to sort of be i don't want to they're somewhere between practice games and playoff games because yes. it was clear that teams are taking it seriously if you watch some of the of the of the um, round robin games the, the tempo was strong and obviously as they go on the uh you know the undeniable desire to win takes over for these athletes especially in that colorado st louis game which really got to like a fever pitch at the end with the cadre goal as, as the, as the buzzer was sounding. Um, but there is a discernible difference in, in uh, pace, a discernible difference in physicality and in uh, the frantic nature of trying to survive a playoff series versus let's rest some guys and, and get ready for the next round. And I didn't quite think that the differences would be that stark. And then obviously, Emily, the other thing that we should talk about is the, the penalties, the parade of penalties. Mm. Um, the officials clearly are treating the restarted season like the start of the season. This is usually <laughs> what we see in exhibition games in September, in the first games of the season in October. Uh, all kinds of penalties being called. Not only the referees establishing the standards of officiating like we've seen in the past, but also uh, the players kind of all being... In different steps, you know, some guys have their legs going, some guys don't. And what you're seeing a lot, I think, in this restart is, according to the coaches at least, players using their sticks, uh, obstructing a bit, hooking, slashing, that kind of thing, because they've they don't have their wheels yet, and and that's sort of the beginning of this thing. But hopefully, we grow out of it because the parade of power plays in some of these games has been kind of tough to watch. 
All right, things I don't like. I didn't like after day one when the Montreal Canadiens and Chicago Blackhawks both won because I was like, ah, oh, damn, here comes everybody who's like, they have no business being here and this tournament is tainted <laughs> and that whole storyline is going to linger. Of course, both teams that were favorited did even it up. So we're at 1-1 in both of those series. Um, again, we are recording this during this Panthers-Islanders game too. I don't like the fact that Bad Bobrovsky is back or that he's never left. I wanted him to have a redemptive storyline. Um, not happy about that. And I, you know, I like it because it's good, it's good intrigue, but I don't like the fact that the Toronto Maple Leafs can't score. I, I like the Columbus Blue Jackets as his giant killers. And in two straight tournaments, if they are able to knock off this high-powered team with their swarming forecheck, that's awesome. But, like, we need to be selling the game right now. The Toronto Maple Leafs are fun. Like, can we get mm-hmm. them some goals? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to see how many star players have sort of been kept in check a little bit during this tournament. I mean, Connor blew up uh, or is blowing up in that Chicago series because Chicago can't really defend. Um, Sid got a goal against the Canadiens in a tightly played series, but the the Leafs uh, and uh, Vancouver stars being kept off the board in the first game was kind of a bummer. Uh, you, this is the time to shine, man. It's it's the big platform. You want to see more of those stars doing their things, but maybe that'll come as we get later in the playoffs. Uh, favorite bell and whistle favorite innovation by the nhl so far i'll say this like i I think in watching all the hockey over the weekend and watching the games now during the week it's become increasingly clear that hockey translates to a sport played within a tv studio better than most um i've watched baseball i've watched soccer i've watched a bunch of different sports during the restart hockey's pretty good (laughs) like you can kind of recreate the feel of a hockey game uh, in the bubble, whether it's the look of, of everything on the ice where, you know, they've tarped off the empty seats and it, it's all very condensed. And I've been telling people it kind of feels like watching a game in the American Gladiator Arena, where this is very sort of like made for TV and, and intimate. Um, but also the augmented sound with the crowd noises from EA Sports and some of the chants and cheers that they've pumped in. Um, like... I said this in the diary that I wrote on Monday about watching all the games of the weekend. If the Stanley Cup playoffs are like the best cheeseburger you've ever eaten, this is sort of the beyond meat version (laughs) where it tricks your brain into tasting the things you're supposed to taste. It's probably healthier for you, obviously. (laughs) Better for the environment. Right. Good for the environment. Right. Um, But it's not the thing that you've come to, you know, crave. But it's good for what it is, and it, and it kind of tricks your brain into believing that you're eating the thing that you like to eat. Yeah, my only tip with Beyond Burgers is don't do a taste test. If you're eating a Beyond Burger, like have no meat that day. Just eat the Beyond Burger because Precisely, once you compare yeah. it to the actual burger, yeah, it doesn't right. hold up. My favorite bell and whistle by far is Hat Lady. She stole the show from me. I want more hat ladies, more little quirky things like that where the NBA or the NFL would scoff and be like, that's so amateur that I could never imagine doing that. But that's the charm and, you know, the quaintness of why we love this league. And I, I want her to be celebrated later in this tournament. Yeah, they should have leaned into it. I'm, I'm a little upset that the mascots aren't in the bubble. Or, or maybe they should have created their own bubble mascot like Flemmy walking around and he's just like mm. your coronavirus bubble mascot have him do some hijinks i agree fun stuff. yeah like good. an olympic mascot precisely <laughs> right although avoid the one they're they had always for so creepy yeah. they're always so creepy 
Uh, the thing that we missed most from the actual games, I can say this without question, it's the spontaneity of the crowd. Um, mm. There was a moment in the Penguins' first game where I think it was Gensel drew a penalty in overtime. Um, and, uh, and like, a, a, a power play in overtime in the playoffs, like, on home ice, it is deafening, the crowd, and the reaction to that moment. It is that moment of being like, we got a chance now, we're going to end this thing, and the crowd rises up, and they want to let the Penguins know, we know that you know that you could end this thing. And when it happened during the game, it was like, as loud as you would have heard a cheer for an icing. Like, it was just such... They didn't know what button to push to really kind of capture that moment. And and that's the thing I miss is the spontaneity of the crowd and the way that they react to things. Like, this is a completely selfish thing. I mean, I just miss being there and I miss the typical media access. And I don't think that the Zoom interviews are really doing it justice because they're so controlled and so sanitized. And, you know, there's some teams like the Calgary Flames the night the Kachuk thing happened. They paraded him out there. It was great. But there's other teams like, you know, the Oilers after Mike Smith gets light up and lit up in first game and he's not available. And it's like the best thing about covering the playoffs is, is right afterwards going into the locker room and staking out a guy's locker because you can't hear what he's going to say and being able mm-hmm. to talk to anybody you want. And we're just missing that. We are. I have to say that one of the more interesting things about the uh, Zoom interviews is the fact that the people inside the arena that are asking questions are wearing masks. So on top of it being remote, we're also getting a lot of this going on, which is uh, a bit jarring, but uh, but safety first, obviously, in all of the stuff that we're doing. All right, let's uh, welcome our first guest. And now joining us on the line is the goaltender for the Dallas Stars, Ben Bishop. Now, Ben, you have been in the bubble for more than a week now. Um, one thing that I am very curious about is how is the food? Oh, uh, the food's good. Um, obviously, we've been here for a week now, so you ask us in a couple of weeks i'm sure the food might be getting a little old but no the food's uh it's really good we have some uh, good options they bring in some food trucks every day and then obviously there's three or four restaurants and uh room service so it's pretty good uh, a lot of options and they've done a good job all right let me ask my bubble question what is, what's been the interaction like between you and opponents uh, they, they showed a video earlier of John Tavares having to walk through the Boston Bruins to kind of get to his area in the arena this morning. I imagine there's been some bumping into dudes inside the hotel. What's what's that been like? Or are you guys kind of just keeping to your own floor? Well, uh, all the, you know, the team rooms are kind of on the same floor here in Edmonton. So you see, you know, those four teams quite a bit, obviously, in the elevators, seeing guys, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a little different, but, you know, I, I've played for a few teams, so, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to see some of the old teammates and, you know, with the uh, USA, seeing guys from there, too. So, uh, you know, obviously, when you get to the rink, it's kind of game on, but when you get back to the hotel, I think, you know, especially hockey guys, you do a pretty good job of separating the two. So, when you see guys around the hotel, uh, you know, you say hi, cordial and all that, but uh, it's definitely a little different. All right, last bubble question, then we'll get to <laughs> hockey. Uh, you know, yesterday we saw the lady who was uh, tasked with throwing hats onto the ice when Connor McDavid got a hat trick, and I know there was, like, a Tim Hortons truck. What are some little things that you've noticed? You're like, wow, I can't believe the NHL thought of that, too. Yeah, the hat thing was pretty funny. Uh, that, uh, I got a kick out of that last night when I was watching the game. 
But uh, they've done a good thing. They have the Tim Horton truck, and then they have, you know, three other trucks outside. So uh, it's been good. Awesome. Uh, all right, let me ask you about On the Ice. We're watching these games. It's like it's like a hockey rink kind of set inside of a TV studio almost with the tarps and the screens and everything else. What's it been like for a goaltender in that environment? Are Have you had any issue picking up the puck with the differences around the rink? No, it's actually a little bit easier with, you know, the tarps back there. Uh, sometimes when there's, you know, you're playing in a in a dark rink and all the fans are wearing dark jerseys, every now and then you could lose one in the stands. But, uh, no, you can see the puck good. And it's a little different, obviously, with the atmosphere. It's not quite the same. But once the play is going on, obviously, you're just focused on the play. You're not really thinking about the stands. So, uh, once, the you know, the puck's dropped and you're playing the game, you're obviously not thinking about it. But... Obviously, the whistles and the, you know, the atmosphere isn't there. This might be a better question to ask you after a week or two after there's more games played, but we're getting three games a day in middle of August at an arena, something the NHL has never done. How's the ice? Do you notice the ice conditions? What's it been like? Well, I think, you know, just playing kind of the first full game yesterday, I thought the ice was pretty good. Uh, you know, it is bouncing quite a bit. It, it's, you know, a tough job to don't have three you know playoff style hockey games at a day at this time of the year but I think they've done a pretty good job uh, so far obviously you know it's not too different when you're playing in you know arenas during the season and there's a basketball game the night before a concert it's tough to keep the ice in great condition but they're doing a good job so far I wanted to ask you about the qualification round versus the round robin. Um, just from watching it on TV, there does seem to be a little bit of a difference in some of these games. Game, the games that you guys had against Vegas was pretty intense at times. But are, do you feel like you guys are getting what you wanted or, or that you're going to get what you want out of these out of these round robin games compared to you know the five-game series that we're watching that are getting pretty intense between these other teams? Yeah, I think we were able to get, you know, what we wanted out of it. Obviously, we wanted to obviously win the game. Uh, it's kind of a tough third period. It's a, it's a different feel. You know, it kind of still feels like a little bit of an exhibition game just because obviously there's something on the line, but it's not like a playoff series where if you lose, you're going home. So it's still, you know, kind of knocking the rust off, especially for, you know, a goalie. It was good to get that full game. And as the game went on, I started to feel better. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different feeling. Obviously, it means something. And, you know, I guess it even counts as, you know, real playoff stats for the the round robin <laughs> thing. So it's a little weird because it's not that do or die mentality where if you lose, you know, you're going home. So, but I think, you know, if you watched the game yesterday, you would have never been able to tell that. So um, obviously it's, a, it's important. You want to get that top seed and, but it's also important to kind of get your team ready. So you're clicking on cylinders when obviously it, it is do or die. Right. You said you're watching that Oilers game. I'm not sure how much you've been watching, but what teams have you seen that you're like, damn, that team looks scary. I don't want to have to face them. What teams look best right now? <laughs> oh, well, I think everybody, you know, everybody was excited to watch that Chicago Edmonton series because, you know, the, the dynamite they have on both sides. We knew it was going to be uh, a lot of goals both ways. So it's been fun to watch, and they haven't disappointed but I think, uh, you know, I don't think we're really too worried about any team. You really want to focus on yourself this time of the year. And, you know, if you're playing well, you expect to win. So whoever the opponent is, you know, you know it's going to be a good team. So as long as you're going to have to be playing well no matter who it is, and I think you can kind of tell that in hockey recently, the parity is there. It doesn't matter if you're 
you know, the eighth seed or the first seed, anybody can win uh, in a seven-game series with the parity in the league right now. So as long as you're clicking on all cylinders and you feel good going into that first round, I think uh, that's kind of where you want to be. Cool. Last one for me, Ben. I've been getting this question from a lot of different people that are curious, probably because of the David Ayers thing earlier this year. How are they handling the e-bugs during the bubble? I mean, uh, I know there's like uh, multiple goalies there, but how are they working e-bugs? No, they I mean, we have four goalies with us. I think I saw there was like 13 teams with four goalies and 11 teams with three. So I think everybody's covered. Everybody's covered? You don't, you don't need the Zamboni driver? No, I don't think we'll have, <laughs> have that issue. Oh, knock on wood. But no, I think uh, we're all covered. And last one for me, I just wanted to ask you about what happened in pregame last night with Taylor, uh, Tyler Sagan and Jason Dickinson joining some of the Golden Knights guys and kneeling. And I know Tyler said that he came into your locker room after talking to Ryan Reeves and he asked any guys if they want to join him. I'm just curious if you could walk us through that scene. Did you witness it? Did you see Dickinson come up and say he wanted to do it? Did you consider doing it at all? What was that like? Oh, no, I mean, it was kind of, you know, we were getting ready to go out for the game and say you just said that he was going to kneel. Uh and, I mean, I think half the guys were in the bathroom and, you know, half the guys were putting their gear on. So I don't know if everybody really understood what was going on. And then I think he saw Dickie in the bathroom and Dickie said he would do it with them. So it was kind of a quick thing that, you know, happened right before we went out. And I don't think anybody really had time to kind of process what was going on. But uh, good for them. Obviously, you know, it's an important cause that they stood up for. So, but no, it was just kind of nothing really ever talked about. Uh, kind of right before we went out, that you mentioned something. So it was... I don't think even most of the guys even heard what was going on. Gotcha. All right, Ben. Thank you so much for your time, man. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll uh, keep watching you as you guys advance to the round of 16. All right. I appreciate it, guys. Have a good one. Our thanks to Ben Bishop of the Dallas Stars for joining us. Great conversation there. Um, moving on to one of the biggest topics of the weekend and the restart and probably something we'll be talking about years from now. The NHL going head-on with the racial injustice, uh, racial equality stuff at the start of these playoffs. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day about the NHL, and here's the thing. I don't know if they've gotten it right. It's probably not for me to say where they've gotten it right. I can say that as a guy who's watched hockey since the late 1980s, um, watching a playoff game with We Skate for Black Lives banner ads on the sides and a video that mentions Black Lives Matter and ends with a giant graphic that says End Racism. And, and it says the killing of George Floyd. And blatantly. the killing of George Floyd having the players stand in a circle and having a player who isn't on either of those teams come out with a sweatshirt that is branded to the Hockey Diversity Alliance, which is founded by players of color and not affiliated with the NHL, and having that player deliver a heartfelt speech about racial injustice and racism in sports and racism in society and then taking a knee during the anthem... Like I said, I can't tell you if they've gotten it right, but I can tell you that in my decades of being a hockey fan, this is stuff I never thought I would ever see in a National Hockey League rank. Ever. 
And you know what's interesting is just how much power the players have right now. Because as of, I think, even 24 hours before Matt Dumba made that speech, like there was not going to be that much signage, that much done for the Hockey Diversity Alliance for Black Lives Matters. And the Hockey Diversity Alliance really pushed back and worked with the NHL behind the scenes. I know that it was contentious. I know you know that too. Um, <laughs> but the NHL relented. And, and they allowed them to have this platform. And, you know, all we've been asking, I think you and I, this is, you know, one of the pillars that, you know, we fight for in our hockey coverage is we want these guys to show off their personalities. We want them to be empowered. We want them um, to use their platform for good and feel like they have the room to do that because hockey culture can often be stifling and doesn't allow them to believe they can. And to see guys really embrace it and lean in and talk about things that are important to them. Um, it's a really big moment for the sport. For sure. And, you know, full marks to Matt Dumba for doing that speech. Uh, no teleprompter, By no heart, He memorized it. There was no teleprompter. I mean, he did the thing. He practiced, practiced, practiced to get it right and spoke from the heart. Um, what happened next, your mileage may vary. Um, I've talked to some people that acknowledge that the players all being in a circle and giving him the stick taps should be read as support. I think it is undeniable that after a speech like that and after 100 players send messages of supporting the black community and minority players, you know, after the killing of George Floyd, that to have Matt Dumba kneeling alone during the anthem was not exactly the greatest optic to end on. I think it also wasn't the greatest optic when Matt Dumba raises a fist during the Wilds game against the Vancouver Canucks, and nobody joins them. And so you're talking, if you're talking about counting up the rosters, this is 80 players that had a chance to join Matt Dumba in any of these protests or demonstrations and didn't, which is why what happened on Monday was so remarkable, that you know Ryan Reeves and Robin Lehner decide they're going to take a knee. Tyler Sagan chimes in with Reeves. Reeves invites him to join. Sagan goes to the Dallas locker room and now it's like a weird play on Jerry Maguire where he's like, who's with me? And like, nobody gets up. And then, you know, Jason Dickinson is Renee Zellweger. He's like, I'm with you. And then he decides to join up and and take a knee as well because he's got players of color in his family. So on the one hand, it's kind of depressing that that it was only four players um, from these teams. But on the other hand, the fact that they recognized and, and Reeves spoke to this, that Matt Dumba, put himself out there and didn't necessarily get the backing of anybody else on the ice in an outward way. Um, And that influencing what these players did in the, before the Vegas Dallas game was really inspiring because I think at the end of the day, we know that any social change, any significant movement within hockey to change the sport and eradicate racism, which is, you know, the stated goal for everybody involved. It can't be one voice speaking it has to be a movement, and it has to be a movement with one voice. Um, and I think that the players recognized that and, and really took that step forward with what they did before that game. You know, I think the last thing I'll end on is this. It's the hockey culture thing. And I understand to an extent of why more players aren't raising their fist or kneeling or joining their teammates. Um, it's just because it's so deeply rooted this institutional we, you, not I mindset. And there was that quote from Dean Evason 
where he was asked in his press conference if there was any talk among the aisle, uh, the wild players about joining Matt Dumba. And he says, nope, there has been no discussions. The only thing that we've discussed as a staff is that we want to eliminate racism for good. And yeah. honestly, it almost sounds like a parody of a hockey coach. Like, <laughs> like how could you possibly say that out loud and then look at it and be like, what? Um, that said, I don't want to get on him because I bet out of the other 30 coaches in the league, like 20 other ones would respond exactly the same way just because right. that's the way hockey culture is. So right. it takes guys like Matt Dumba, like Ryan Reeves, like Robin Lehner and Tyler Sagan and Jason Dickinson, who can be allies um, to lead the way. And also, I just want to give out a shout out to Alexander Georgiev, who I talked to this week, my sweet prince. Uh, <laughs> I, I just... I couldn't get over the story because I saw that he had painted his mask with Martin Luther King on the side. And I'm like, oh, that's like kind of weird. Like, it's nice and it's a good gesture. But like, I don't know. It, just, it seems a little odd for a guy who was born, raised in Russia. Right. And I talked to him on the phone and he was so earnest about it. He's like, you know, I grew up in Russia. I spend my summers in Finland and it's all homogeneous. And when I came to America, I was just so shocked by the diversity of how everyone felt like they could be at home here. And when I went home over the pandemic to Russia and I'm following the news and what was going on, I was just... Shocked because I didn't know that that racism and that, you know, blatantly still existed. And that's not cool. And like he did his research on his own and he found this was the way that he could use his voice as a backup goaltender. You know, there's not much you can do. Um, But to paint Martin Luther King in the I Have a Dream speech, I think is really sweet. It is. Um, Last thing I'll say is about the Hockey Diversity Alliance, which, boy, you know, um, Evander Kane gave an interview to TSN that behind the scenes did a lot of harm to be quite honest with you. Um, He spoke out about how they weren't doing anything for the HDA. The HDA gets their branding on a video. The NHL and the NHLPA produced about racism. Um, Dumba comes out in the sweatshirt Uh, for an organization that isn't affiliated with the national hockey league. That's a bigger push than almost anyone would. That's a bigger push than the women's leagues got when they let let their players play in the all-star competitions. Um, the other thing I'll say is that Evander Kane talked about how the league was asked for $10 million a season um, to support the HDA's initiatives. And listen, we all want this to succeed. We all want... this organization to do right and to be able to make change and affect change. But it is early. It is months early. This is a newborn, okay? And they went to the National Hockey League and asked for $100 million. That's confirmed by multiple sources. It's not $10 million. It might come out to $10 million a season, but it's 10 seasons, okay? They went to Gary Bettman and said, we need $100 million from you to do this thing. Gary Bettman and the National Hockey League aren't giving $100 million to organizations that have been around for three years, let alone three months. Okay, so... They could support women's hockey. That's been around a while. I completely agree. And that's what I'm they saying. They give a million like, dollars like, to women's like, hockey. There's no proof of concept. There's a plan. I think that this organization is going to do some really incredible things to transform the sport, but two things got to happen. Baby steps... And speak with one voice. And I don't think that Evander Kane necessarily spoke with one voice when he talked to TSN and torched the NHL on the eve of the playoffs. So hopefully hopefully lessons are learned because it's a good organization. 
with the right aim. They just got to get everybody on the same page. All right, let's bring in our next guest. Isaac Bogosh is a uh, consultant for the NHLPA on the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and return to play. And he joins us now. Hey, uh, every time we're doing tests, they're coming back negative. This is pretty amazing. <laughs> like, we look over at baseball and the complete mess that baseball is, and then hockey's over here. Negative tests coming out of Phase 3, negative tests in the first part of Phase 4. How did they get this right? I really think the bubble approach is the best path forward, at least given this point in time during the global pandemic. Of course, we know it's not going to be perfect. I think we're all talking about risk mitigation, not risk elimination. But with these careful protocols, with careful testing, with symptom checks, with good communication, I think we're starting to see the bubble approach, not just in hockey, but also with basketball and soccer, uh, really be probably the best approach while the case numbers are this high globally. So I know you were consulting with the NHLPA as they were figuring out their return to play plan. What were some of the questions they were asking you? What were they curious about as they were planning this entire tournament? Well, a lot of it just really revolved around player safety and really how to maximize player safety, especially given that there were you know, a lot of unknowns, right? We didn't know exactly where the virus was and what direction it was heading in in, in certain places. Certainly, there's still some underlying medical questions about the virus. Like, there's still a lot of unknowns. So of course, we have to be humble about, about this virus. You know, we're learning as much as we can, but by no means do we have all the answers. So a lot of the questions we're basically focused on how do we make this as safe as humanly possible for the players. And of course, it's not just the players, it's also the ancillary staff. And we know that even though we're talking about a bubble, uh, the bubble has to be placed in a particular community. And, and there was a lot of focus on ensuring that there was you know, the ethical con uh, conduct of, of hockey. So player safety, ancillary staff safety, and how to, how to conduct this in, in a meaningful way that really respected the, the local community. And, and, you know, I think the, between the Players Association and the league, I think they really went about this the right way. When you saw the Phase 4 protocols, um, which I'm sure you, you probably had a hand in crafting as well, um, was there one aspect of this restart in the two hub cities, Toronto and Edmonton, where you were like, all right, fingers crossed, this is the thing that has to go right for this thing to be pulled off? In all fairness, I thought that that I would I kind of want to rephrase the question a tiny bit. It was phase three, right? It was oh, at okay. the training camps. The bubble because the bubble itself is pretty strong, right? There's testing every day. There's symptom checks every day. Where there's the establishment of all these public health measures like hand hygiene, mask wearing, physical distancing where possible. Like all the crucial public health measures are really integrated into that bubble. But phase three, uh, I mean, you can only do that in the part that you control, which is, of course, the rink environment. And the question is, well, what are people going to be doing in the other 20 hours of the day when they're not at the rink? And, of course, you can make the uh, training facilities as safe as possible. But a lot of this boiled down to really ensuring that the players were aware that, yeah, some, some parts of the United States, more than others, are really impacted by COVID-19 and you, you, you know, people can get this infection. You either you stay at home and you go between your home and the rink, and uh, and and it's it, there's a lot of personal responsibility and also responsibility to your teammates as well to make sure that you don't pick this infection up and, and, and bring it to the rink. 
And, uh, you know, I, I think it's still too early to pat everyone on the back and say job well done. But it looks like to date people did the right thing. Of course, I, I'm not going to rest and relax until the Stanley Cup is hoisted. But, uh, <laughs> but to date, it looks like things have gone well so far. So what are some things that you are now keeping an eye on um, as the NHL continues this tournament? Um, you know, one of the things I have my eye on is families, players, uh, players, families rather, are supposed to be joining them in the conference final and you're integrating new people into the bubble. And to me, that seems like a really risky thing because you've got uh, an operation that's working and then you're introducing new people into it. Like, how do you think that's going to work out and, and what type of things are you monitoring? Yeah, that's that's certainly a great point. And um, the those protocols really try to address the risk that's uh, that's possibly introduced in that setting. So people are supposed to stay at home. Uh, they have to have diagnostic testing, of course, before they come into the bubble as well. When they're in the bubble, there's certain protocols that really ensure that there's a, a high amount of di- you know, daily diagnostic testing and, and symptom checks and all these measures so that if if, if on the off chance that it is introduced into the bubble, it's not going to spread within the bubble. But I think, you know, we have to also balance this with, you know, I appreciate they're the professional athletes, but they're also human. And being away from home, from your wife or your children or your family for, for a couple of months is, is going to be rather challenging. So I, I think it's that, I think it's an appropriate balance that, uh, you know, about a month or so in, uh, families can come in as long as it's done in a very safe and controlled manner. Uh, and, uh, and, and really, this, the, the highest medical standards are adhered to. So, uh, obviously, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I, I'm not going to relax until we see the Stanley Cup hoisted. And, and, uh, but uh, I think so far to date, the, uh, the system's gone well. It looks like everyone's getting the test done in an appropriate manner. It looks like the tests are turning around. It looks like all those all those public health principles and, and, and protocols are, are they're, they're really being uh, introduced and, and implemented in an effective manner. We have a lot of listeners, obviously, in the U.S. Um, you know, one of the places that the NHL was looking at was Las Vegas. From a bubble perspective, the geography could have been more perfect. From a COVID-19 perspective, uh, it became, basically became a Petri dish at one point, so they couldn't go there. Um can, can you tell us how Canada got things kind of right and like why here in the U.S. things are not good? Because we've all sort of been looking at Canada and been, especially like Alberta. Like Alberta's been telling us since April, like, come here. We've got this thing yeah. under control. And we're all like, no, you don't. Nobody does. And it turned <laughs> out they kind of did. So what, what went right in Canada that didn't go right here? Yeah. I, I, so – I, I want to approach this really with, with I mean this sincerely, with total love and respect, right? I'm sitting <laughs> in Toronto. I really am. I really am sitting in Toronto, and I don't want to be – I'm not really trying to be a smug Canadian. Obviously, we know the numbers are really high in the United States, and in general, as you point out, things are under pretty decent control in Canada. Canada, population of close to 38 million people, we're getting about 200 to 400 new cases per day. It's not perfect, but it's pretty damn good. Whereas you look at some of the places in the United States and you just watch these cases exploding. And of course, I, I preface this with like, really, the United States is our, our neighbor, our closest friend, our biggest trade partner, and we just wish everyone well there. But I think what we did differently in Canada was early on, I would say earlier on, at some point, all the senior political leaders appreciated that this was a big deal. No one was denying that this wasn't a big deal. And 
we have very good senior public health leadership in Canada, as you do in the United States. And we listened to our senior public health leadership. And when they said it was time to lock down, we locked down. When they said it was time to put on a mask, we put on a mask. When they said it was time to wash our hands, we washed our hands. And we waited. And, and when they said it was time to open up safely and slowly, we carefully and slowly started to open up. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't a walk in the park. We certainly got some things wrong. But uh, in general, where we're sitting now, uh, it's, we're, we're, we've done rather well and we've kept this under control. So good leadership uh, and adherence to, those, to that, that leadership. We didn't politicize this pandemic whatsoever. We just rolled up our sleeves and did what needed to be done and listened to the people that knew what they were talking about. All I want to say is can't relate, but that is beautiful. Uh, last <laughs> one from me, uh, and I appreciate your time. You know, I just want to know what's next. You know, the NHL is a business and it wants to keep operating. They want to have the next season start and they're looking at December. And look, we don't know what this virus is going to be over the next couple months. But from what I understand, it's probably still going to be living with us, especially here in the U.S. And uh, we're probably still not going to have a vaccine. Is it possible to get the next NHL season going, not in a bubble environment? What would need to be done? Does there need to be daily testing? Because that's another thing that costs millions of dollars and the NHL will have to weigh. Well, this is, I mean, that's the million dollar question. And to be totally transparent, I don't actually know the answer. And I've really been scratching my head. I think based on the current scenario, the current case burden across much of the United States, I, I think a, some sort of hybrid bubble approach is probably the best approach. I mean, you look at baseball uh, and, and how it's impacted baseball without being in a bubble, and uh, you can see how this might quickly unravel with a, with a scenario like that. So I think there's, a, there's some probable bubble approach on the horizon uh, because even though there are trends towards things getting a little bit better, even in some of the most heavily impacted places in the United States, this is not going to go away anytime soon. And of course, we'll probably have a vaccine, probably late 2020 or early 2021, more likely. But even with the vaccine, it's still going to take a long time before we sort of slide on that spectrum towards normalcy. So um, I, I'm not entirely sure what the next season is going to look like, uh, but I can't imagine it's going to be uh, that closely resembling um, you know, what we remember NHL to look like beforehand. But again, I, I've just, I just don't know. And last one for me, and thanks for your time. Um, I mean, obviously you're working with the NHLPA. Uh, the players are paramount on our minds when it comes to being in this situation. Some might say being put into the situation of playing in a pandemic. Do we have a handle on what long-term effects could be for players that get it and, and recover from it? Um, we hear all these things about it being pulmonary. We hear things about it being respiratory. We've heard things about, you know, organs being affected long after the symptoms have cleared up. Do we have any clarity on this or, or is this disease just a complete mystery months into the pandemic? Uh, great question. So a uh, couple of points. One, uh, you know, obviously we've only known this infections existed for seven months. So of course we have to remain humble and we don't have all the answers, but there certainly is, uh, a, a pretty heavy burden of evidence showing that the vast majority of people, especially people who are in their you know, teens and 20s and early 30s, most people that get this infection uh, don't get that sick, don't need to be in hospital uh, and recover completely over a few days. And, and that, I mean, that's partially one of the reasons why we have a pandemic is because 
it's not deadly because it's easily transmittable and it doesn't make people all that sick in much of much of the time. Of course, we're well aware of people, uh, mainly people over the age of 60 or people with underlying medical conditions that get very, very sick and sadly pass away. But because it's so easily transmitted um, and because there's mild symptoms in, in most younger people, uh, it's, we, it can spread like wildfire, which we've seen it do. But, there, you know, most people aren't going to have longer term complications. There's certainly this is being studied and there's certainly a small proportion of people that just take a longer time to recover. Um, and I should also point out, that while there may be some unique components to COVID-19, uh, there are other components that aren't. So we know that some people, for example, with other viral respiratory illnesses like the flu, will have persistent symptoms for weeks and weeks and weeks after recovery and even months and months and months. Having said that, we still have to be humble. And there are big studies that are enrolling patients who have resolved COVID-19 infections to look at some of the longer term outcomes of this virus. Great stuff. Isaac, thank you so much for your time, man. We do appreciate it. Thank you for all the hard work that you and, and others have done to make this a possibility. I mean, I think back in you know March and April, a lot of us didn't think we'd get to this point, but, uh, but here we are, and, and so far, so good. So thanks for your time, man. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Our thanks to the good doctor for all that information. Let's do some reader mail. Brian G. wants to know, why is the NHL playing the goal horn and goal song for road teams? We actually know the answer to this. Um, the NHL was worried that on television, if there wasn't some reaction to the goals on the road team scores, if it's like a 5 nothing game and all the goals are from by the road team, it's going to be really super awkward for the announcers. So they actually are doing that for the benefit of television, creating some energy. It, it, it has created this sort of like... In traditionalist debate about whether they should play the goal horn of the opposing team when they score, but I've got no problem with it. It just kind of adds to the cacophony of sound, personally. Do you have an issue with it? To be honest, in 90% of these games, and this goal song you know, issue is definitely adding to that, I have no idea who the home and away team is. I, I, zero, <laughs> I genuinely have no idea. Like, you can kind of tell if they're talking about last change and you see a, you know, a coach you know, making adjustments. And you're like, oh, they're the home team. Um, but other than that, I have no idea. Right, right. <laughs> uh, Patrick Marsh wants to know, it's very early in the qualifying round, but what are the chances that this year might spark serious discussion about long-term playoff reform? Let's assume that they will fix the problem with a play-in team winning the draft lottery. <laughs> uh, Emily, what are your thoughts on expanded playoffs uh, based on this year's uh, adventure? I don't know if this year is necessarily going to be the year that moves the needle. I think that the only reason that they will expand the playoffs is if there is significant push from TV partners or sponsors. Like That's why you see MLB expanding their postseasons because ESPN wanted them to. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, TJ Mikaloon writes in, after the season is over, will Emily put up a collage of all of the notebook drawings for the episodes of the podcast? Apparently someone is a fan of your art and wants to see this art displayed. Yes, I plan on putting it on an entire whiteboard so I can become a meme like Carrie Matheson or why can't I think of the character from It's Always Sunny? With Charlie? Who also, yeah, Charlie. Or, or Charlie, and it can just be the three of us and our mad scribblings. Perfect. Um, all right, now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. 
the portion of the show in which we look at the hockey media. Boy, did we have two really good contenders. This was a neck-and-neck neck race. This is like a photo finish. It was a great week for this. But we had to give it to Adrian Dater um, of Colorado Hockey Epic. Now. Epic. Dater uh, offered a very, very spicy take on Connor McDavid um, that McDavid promptly threw into the trash with like an all-timer effort in Game 2 against the Blackhawks. In a like now the most deleted... gorgeous goal I've seen in a playoffs in a yeah. while. Like his second goal was like one for the time capsule. Uh, in a deleted tweet, of course, uh, Dater said, quote, regretting my Oilers pick over Chicago. Connor McDavid is a brilliant talent, but a personality deficient guy. I think this blandness rubs off too much on teammates. Happy to hear opinions to the contrary, but fact is he doesn't inspire others. I don't know, man. It's pretty inspiring to see, like, the best player of the world on your team, like, carrying your ass for a season. I think it's kind of inspiring at times, right? It's pretty inspiring. One could argue. Uh, I, I love Jeff Jackson, Connor's agent, reply. I didn't realize that he de- deleted the tweet. But he's he like, did, yeah. dude, like, you saw him upset after a loss in a Zoom interview. Like, have you seen him in the locker room? Have you been with him on, in the locker Like, have you seen him the way he is ever? But, uh, yeah, like I said, Zoom interviews just don't do it justice. <laughs> What did what did Jeff uh, what did Jeff is that what Jeff Jackson said? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, must have been deleted also. Oh, here right, it is. Here go. it is. And you know this how you've been in the gym with him and his teammates on the ice on the plane at team dinners in team meetings? No, of course not. You've seen post game press conferences after a loss. Big deal. You don't have a clue. Wow. Can confirm he probably hasn't been on the plane. Uh, <laughs> all right, now it's time for puck headlines. Dateline Austin Matthews. Uh, yeah. In case you couldn't tell, this was the other contender. Here's what Austin Matthews had to say when Steve Simmons asked him a question. Uh, Steve Simmons, Toronto son for Austin. Uh, it's one thing to hear about how tight they play and to even watch the films of how tight they play. What was it like to experience it? Uh, well, first of all, I mean, it's unfortunate that I'm getting a question from me at this point, Steve, but I just wanted to say I didn't really appreciate the article you wrote about me a couple months ago, I thought. Um, you know, it was a bit unethical, to be honest, um, but... Moving along, I thought um, you know they obviously play a really structured, uh, structured defense. Yeah, and yada yada yada. yada moving along, and yada yada yada. So like, here here's the thing, you know, like <laughs> the thing you got to do is track down the video and look at Morgan Riley during all this, because at first Morgan Riley hears Steve Simmons's name and then just like goes emotionless, just dead fishes it basically, and then when Austin Matthews starts going into this, his soliloquy about Steve Simmons asking the question, Riley's head just goes. <laughs> Like, shoots over, like, when a dog hears a loud noise. <laughs> so. My favorite part of it was, like, okay, bad questions asked all the time. I asked a lot of them. Not a great question, kind of a weird one. And not only does Austin give his little soliloquy, but then he goes, moving on, and answers it earnestly. Like, yeah. that was the best part about it. That's incredible, too. Like, how many times have we heard and seen people get shut down by athletes because they don't want to do business with them? And then they just, like, mm-hmm. next question it. Look, yes. Matthews answered the question, and I think that's great. He said he said his piece, and and they moved on. Uh, Dateline NHL. How tired are we of the it's the playoffs but not a playoffs thing at this point? It's just it's it's confusing to a lot of people, and I feel like to have to explain. Well, the playoff stats will count for playoff official stats, but the game will not count is very tiresome. Not only that, but they can't even stick to their own rules. 
the class. You know, one of the things I think Roger Ebert always said about reviewing uh, films is that if you establish a set of rules for a film, you best follow those rules. If you violate your own rules, then what's the point in watching the movie? Same thing here. Don't tell me that Henrik Lundqvist has a, a, a playoff start streak. Yeah, okay, the playoff stats count, but is it a playoff game? That's what – that's the – the streak needs it to be a playoff game for the streak to continue. And you told me that, but then at the same time, it's exactly, exactly. Dateline fashion. Emily, what has been your favorite NHL fit so far inside the bubble? Well, this is just my plug that everyone should look at ESPN.com on Thursday because I have a special fashion correspondent giving me the best and worst. Um, but I got to give a shout out to Austin Matthews because I think he is the guy leading the game in the NHL right now when it comes to style. Um, he really cares. He idolizes Russell Westbrook. He's had some cool bucket hats. He's had some cool jeans. He's had some shoes that probably cost more than my monthly rent. Um, I think he's looked fantastic. I love the fact that the ex-jock coaches have decided I don't need to wear a suit if I don't need to wear a suit. Like Craig Berube is basically wearing a zip-up. The best fit, though, without question, is Rick Tockett uh, with the the fancy high-end Coyotes jacket looking like a venture capitalist. Um, it's perfect. It's awesome. Like, squint your eyes, and that's Jeff Bezos behind the bench if Jeff Bezos was, like, jacked. <laughs> well, the entire Coyotes team decided instead of doing the team-issued polos, they would get custom Lululemon sweatsuits, yeah. which my fashion correspondent says make them look like a minor league team. <laughs> I think they look like the Harvard rowing team, personally. <laughs> all right. That's it for this edition of ESPN and Ice. Our thanks to our guests. Our thanks to all of you. If you dig the show, head to iTunes and uh, leave a review. Uh, subscribe. Tell a friend. Uh, you could read my stuff on ESPN.com. I have a big story uh, on the First effort by the NHL to do diversity with the NHL Diversity Task Force. This was an initiative in the 1990s. Actually, the task force that ended up locating where Willie O'Ree was. They had no idea. Um, it's a, it was an interesting uh, deep dive, and I hope you do check it out. And then also my other podcast, Puck Soup, is where I curse. I'm Emily Kaplan. Follow me on Twitter at Emily M. Kaplan. Please review, 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 subscribe, give us five stars. Love you. Bye. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.